Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadee Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're in the Frequently Asked Questions section, which is all the way towards the back of Volume 1, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is the source text for this group learning program. Last week on Sunday, we finished up our last chapter, which was Chapter 24, Misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's Teachings. But now there's a bunch of additional content all the way towards the back of the book to help you further understand the teachings of the Buddha and gain insight into what it will take in order for you to get to the enlightened mental state. This section is titled Frequently Asked Questions, which is what we're going to be discussing today. There's 11 individual frequently asked questions that we're going to be discussing. I'll share teachings with you on those, and then you're able to ask any and all questions that you like through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom related to this content. Then towards the end of class, we're going to be discussing how to determine if you've attained enlightenment. This is one of the sections that are all the way towards the end of the book that helps you to figure out and understand how to determine whether or not you've actually attained enlightenment or not. Because over the last six and a half months, I've been sharing teachings that would help a student to develop a foundation to understand how to get towards this enlightened mental state and move towards this enlightened mental state. But here there's these frequently asked questions that many people ask, so I included them towards the end of the book so that you would be able to have access to those as well. So as I mentioned, if you have any questions as we go, you're welcome to ask any and all questions by putting those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's move right into this content. The first question is, how do I become Buddhist? This is a very common question that students will ask or people who are interested in getting on the path to enlightenment, they will ask this question of how do I become Buddhist? Well, any and all labels that one might try to assign, they need to get rid of those as part of getting on to the path to enlightenment, as part of progressing to the enlightened mental state. So oftentimes people are asking, how do I become Buddhist? Because they're looking to assume this label of I am a Buddhist. Well, Gautama Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Jesus Christ wasn't a Christian. These are just labels that people came up with later after the death of these original teachers. So I encourage people to not consider themselves as I am a Buddhist because that's just adopting more and more personal existence view, which is something that we've talked about in this program of that very first fetter of personal existence view that needs to be eliminated. 
But in terms of how do I become Buddhist, the way that I think about this question when students ask it is how do I get to enlightenment? Because that's the real question there is how do I get to enlightenment? Because there's no one who determines whether you are Buddhist or aren't. There's no criteria that determines that. But what someone who might be interested in pursuing the path to enlightenment in learning the teachings of the Buddha, which are referred to as Buddhism, what you might be thinking about is how do I get to enlightenment? That's the ultimate question that I think is more valuable to spend time on to actually answer. Well, in order to get to enlightenment, an individual would need to have access to the teachings through books, audiobooks, videos, podcasts, classes, either online or in person. They would need to have personal guidance with the teacher. They would need to be able to have interaction with somebody who would be able to guide them towards enlightenment. And you're not believing the teachings of the Buddha. You're learning, you're reflecting to independently verify them, and then you're practicing them in order to move the mind to this enlightened mental state by cultivating wisdom. You're training the mind. So you shouldn't be interested in how to become Buddhist, but instead, how do you train this mind to get to enlightenment? And that's what you're learning as part of this group learning program and what you have learned if you've been learning with me throughout this group learning program is how to learn, reflect, and practice and train the mind to get to this enlightened mental state. The second question is, do I need to give up all my possessions, occupation, and relationships to attain enlightenment? The answer is no. That's the short answer. You don't have to give up your possessions, occupations, and relationships. What you need to do is eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, the longing, the yearning, the clinging, and holding on to these possessions, occupations, or relationships thinking that these are the things that are going to provide you some kind of lasting satisfaction. Because what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's seeking satisfaction outside of itself. It thinks that this ultimate happiness is going to come from some possession or some occupation or some relationship. We're going to have possessions and occupation and relationships as you get to enlightenment. You'll still have these things, but you just need to learn how to not crave or yearn or long for these things. You need to learn how to not cling to these things, thinking that these are yours and they belong to you and they're going to be permanent. You need to learn how to have possessions an occupation and relationships, but without attachment to these things. And that's what this path is all about, helping you to learn how to navigate this world by having certain possessions and occupation or relationships, but without craving desire attachment. So you don't need to give up all these things. You just need to eliminate the longing and yearning in the mind and clinging to these things. The third question is, what is reincarnation and rebirth? Are they the same thing? This is a very common question that I often get from students. Well, reincarnation is not what the Buddha taught. It's oftentimes talked about in association with Buddhist teachings, but the Buddha didn't teach this. Instead, he taught the cycle of rebirth. So let's talk about what these two things are and how they're different and what the Buddha actually taught. This concept of reincarnation, which isn't the truth, is based on a soul that exists and then continues to exist through multiple existences. This soul takes up 
multiple bodies or multiple existences and it's the same individual but in a different existence this is not what the buddha taught it conflicts with his universal truth of impermanence it conflicts with his universal truth of non-self and it conflicts with his undeclared teachings during his lifetime he taught many things and there's particular discourses where he shares the things that he did not teach he says remember what i taught i taught these things and remember what I did not teach. I did not teach these things. And he leaves the teaching about a soul, among other things, as an undeclared teaching. He didn't declare whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. So this whole concept of reincarnation relating to a soul that goes through multiple existences and takes up forms and existences over multiple lifetimes, this conflicts with three of his teachings, primary teaching of the universal truth of impermanence, a primary teaching of the universal truth of non-self, and his undeclared teachings. So even though people might use the term reincarnation associated with Buddhist teachings, you can understand that it's not what the Buddha taught. He taught what we refer to as the cycle of rebirth. In the original source teachings in the Pali language, the word samsara is used. And this is oftentimes translated to be the cycle of rebirth. But when you understand what samsara is, you come to understand that it's really better described as the cycle of new existence because there's nothing that's actually being reborn. But a lot of people refer to it as the cycle of rebirth or rebirth but when you understand that there's one life that has a physical body and a mind that has come together for this existence. And then when that being dies, the body and the mind separate. The cravings and residual memories from one mind then move into a new mind. And there's now a new mind that's gonna take up a new body if it's in the animal realm or the human realm. Understanding this, you can see that it's a completely new existence. It's a completely new body and new mind every single existence and if it's a formless existence in the hell realm the afflicted spirit realm or the heavenly realm it's still a new consciousness but it has cravings and residual memories from its previous lives so these cravings and residual memories are moving from life to life so at the end of your life if you still have craving desire attachment in the mind meaning you haven't gotten to enlightenment then there's going to be rebirth there's going to be a new existence so craving is the determining factor of whether someone is reborn or not and that's the fuel and now if there is going to be rebirth craving and residual memories move into this new mind and what realm that being is going to be in and what condition that being is going to be in within that realm is based on one's gamma this is the results of your decisions the cause and effect so this cycle of rebirth is really the cycle of new existence where there's a completely new body and a completely new mind in each individual existence and this is what the buddha taught he didn't teach reincarnation so they are not the same thing and reincarnation is not the truth it's not what the buddha taught he taught the cycle of rebirth or the cycle of new existence number four is can i be buddhist without believing in rebirth well if you've been learning with me for any amount of time i teach students at the very beginning of their journey with me to never believe anything related to the teachings of the buddha never believe the 
books, never believe me, never believe anything about the teachings of the Buddha, but instead to learn, reflect, and practice. That includes rebirth. You should never believe in the cycle of rebirth or the cycle of new existence. So yes, you can get on this path to enlightenment and progress towards enlightenment without believing in the cycle of rebirth. And you should not believe in the cycle of rebirth. Because remember, you're not interested in declaring that I am a Buddhist because that's covered in the first question. But then you're not interested in believing any of the teachings whatsoever. Instead, what I suggest students do when they first start out is that they set the cycle of rebirth to the side. Even though in this particular program, I reference it a few times here and there. In chapter 20, we go into talking about the evolution of the consciousness from the animal realm to the human realm. We talk about this evolution of consciousness in chapter 20. But it's not until volume 11 of the book series where we really dive deeply into the cycle of rebirth. And there's some things that I help students learn along the way, but it's not usually until about a year and a half, two years into the, your development on the path to enlightenment that you really might decide to start looking at the cycle of rebirth real closely. It's important to understand it's part of the teachings. It's important to understand how it connects to the teachings, but I don't suggest that you ever believe it. If you would like to use it as motivation in terms of if you've experienced grief and misery in this life, that there's no interest whatsoever to ever come back and repeat that over and over again, then use it as motivation that, okay, you know, just in case this cycle of rebirth is true, then let me do what I can do and not be complacent to get out of this whole cycle, training my mind to get to enlightenment so that I don't need to come back. But understand a year and a half, two years from now, you might be in a position to better approach the cycle of rebirth and understand it at that point. What you would like to do is really focus on the core central teachings, which are the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, developing your meditation practice, understanding the 10 fetters, the Brahma Viharas, the seven factors of enlightenment, things like this. Because what this is going to do is it's going to help you to eliminate the pollution out of your mind. And as you're eliminating the pollution out of your mind, it's not uncommon for somebody to see and observe their past lives. And this is going to give you the 100% confidence that the cycle of rebirth is true and real if you start observing your past lives. So by getting the pollution out of the mind with the core central teachings and focusing on that, setting the cycle of rebirth to the side, you might get to the point where you do observe your past lives. And if that's the case, then fine. But not everybody who gets to enlightenment is going to observe their past lives. But you'll probably have enough experiences along the way that you might have experienced things like deja vu, where you have this bubbling up of residual memories from the past, where you know it hasn't happened in this life, but it's potentially happened in some prior life. And this can at least give you an indication that the cycle of rebirth is true. And then the same thing when we talk about the evolution of the consciousness from the animal realm to the human realm, you can start seeing those aspects of the mind as well. But never believe in the cycle of rebirth. But when you get to a point that your foundational teachings are well underway and well developed in your life practice, that might be a better time for you to then approach the cycle of rebirth and start to investigate it more deeply. And then over a series of 
discussions, uh, multiple study sessions, you can come to see more and more clearly the cycle of rebirth. It's not going to be a five minute conversation and then boom, you got it. So that would be what belief is, right? Somebody's trying to convince you to believe in something. But instead, to be able to see the clarity of the cycle of rebirth and how true it is, you're going to need to do a lot of preliminary work to train the mind, get some of that pollution out of the mind, which means that you might start experiencing the residual memories of the past. And then at that point, as you're starting to see these benefits to the condition of the mind, you'll know with confidence that you can start approaching this cycle of rebirth and consider it as part of your practice and developing your understanding of it. Because I can tell you with 100% certainty that the cycle of rebirth is 100% the truth. The Buddha shared amazing plethora of teachings very comprehensive, very detailed, very precise, very concise teachings that are going to allow you to learn them, reflect on them and practice them to awaken the mind to get to this enlightened mental state where you'll no longer be experiencing any discontent feelings. He didn't just slip in the cycle of rebirth as a matter of, hey, let me just slip this in there. Instead, what he's sharing with you is the wisdom of the natural laws of existence. And the cycle of rebirth is one of these things that is happening in this world. So he's sharing with you these natural laws so that you can understand it. And it really helps you that if you start observing your past lives without the understanding that there is a cycle of rebirth, you might think you're going crazy or becoming delusional. But with this understanding that there are previous lives, then as these residual memories start coming up to the surface, you can understand them and you can reach out to someone like me and I can help you to be able to process this. I never tell you what your past lives are or anything like that, but I just guide you in where to look and how to understand what's happening in the experiences that you're having. So the cycle of rebirth, I know with 100% certainty is the truth and that's why I teach it. But for you right now, if you're six and a half months into your learning or anywhere within the first year or so, you might just decide to set this to the side and just focus on the core teachings and always remember not to believe in anything. And at the same time, understand that the Buddha never used the cycle of rebirth as a way to guilt, shame, or fear people into learning and practicing his teachings because he's helping you to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear, among other discontent feelings. So we wouldn't use guilt, shame, and fear in order to help you eliminate guilt, shame, and fear. So sometimes people use these kind of things like the realms of existence in order to guilt, shame, or fear people into learning and practicing a certain collection of teachings. And while there might be people today that are doing that, Gautama Buddha himself never did that as part of his teachings. So you can use the cycle of rebirth as motivation and encouragement for yourself, but largely just set it to the side at the beginning. This fifth question is, what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha? And is there a ceremony to do this? Well, whenever you see any aspect of teachings that are being labeled as Buddhism, if there's a right ritual ceremony or worship associated with it, this isn't the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha was known to ordain people right on the side of the road. If somebody came up to him and he knew this person or if they talked with him and they were interested in learning, sometimes he would just right on the side of the road ordain this person and bring them into his community so they could start learning. If he was walking from one place to the other and someone stopped him and was like, hey, I would like to be a student of yours, 
the Buddha is headed towards a particular village to teach, he's like, all right, come along, right? And he would ordain this person right there, perhaps. Of course, after talking with the person, after ensuring that the family was supportive of this person to ordain and so forth. So whenever you see a right ritual ceremony or worship as part of anything related to the teachings of the Buddha, this isn't what the Buddha taught. Well, this idea of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, first let's understand what refuge is. What refuge is, is refuge is protection, having some type of protection. And some people will say, take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Well, you guys understand what a Buddha is. I've shared that in previous classes where an individual awakens to enlightenment on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their independently discovered teachings with countless people. And countless people get to enlightenment during that person's lifetime. And then they preserve their teachings in such a way that countless more people get to enlightenment after their death. So that's what makes a Buddha a Buddha. The Dhamma is the Pali word for the teachings. And the Sangha is the Pali word for the community. So some people think that there's a ceremony that you can take where you're now taking refuge in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. And this is kind of, some people say, it's marking your confirmation as a Buddhist or your conversion to Buddhism, or there's some ceremony that's thought to be that this is going to now protect you in some way, but this isn't what the Buddha taught. Instead, if you're taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, what you're doing is you're building confidence in the Buddha, that he was enlightened and he was an actual Buddha. You're gaining access to his teachings to be able to learn them and to be able to reflect on them and to be able to practice them. And then you're part of the community, a part of a community. Like we have this online community, we have an in-person community where people come together and you would need to have all three of these things in order to get to enlightenment. We call it the triple gem or the triple jewel. That you may not have these things now. You may not have confidence in the Buddha. If you are learning with me, you have access to his teachings and you're part of a community. But slowly but surely, as you develop more and more confidence in the Buddha through seeing the improvement to the condition of your mind, by you gaining more and more access to the teachings and penetrating them to learn, reflect, and practice, you'll see that improvement to the condition of the mind. And by being part of a community, you have people that are role models, people that you can model your practice after, who are perhaps further along on the path than you, and you can ask them questions, and you can get help. And by having this ability to have confidence in the Buddha, access to his teachings, and being a member of a community, now what the Buddha describes is you've taken refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. People created ceremonies after his death to be able to acknowledge this, but there's no acknowledgement of it. You don't need to go through this ceremony in order to acknowledge that you're now choosing to embark on this journey to enlightenment. And what the protection is, or the refuge is, is that by the time you get to enlightenment, your mind will be fully protected. There's nothing that's gonna shake it up. The mind is steady, it's calm, it's very stable. There's nothing that's gonna shake it up, whether it's somebody saying something disrespectful to you, whether it's a loved one that has passed away, whether you've lost your job, whether your car got into an accident, whether a tree hit your house, 
Uh, no matter what happens, your mind isn't going to be shaken up. You'll understand that all these things are happening for various reasons, and then you'll be able to just handle them with wise decisions. You will have trained your mind so well that there's nothing that could shake up the mind. And that's what it means to take refuge in the Buddha, the teachings in the community, because by training your mind to get closer and closer to enlightenment, it will now be protected. But you don't need a ceremony in order to acknowledge this. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have related to these first five questions. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. Okay, here we're seeing some questions coming in on Facebook. Here, Amina saying, hello. Recently, you shared a helpful post about eliminating judgment and focusing on discernment. Would you be able to give an example from your life to help us understand this principle? This is an area where the mind still needs to reflect and improve upon in practice. Thanks. Amina, let me share that towards the end of class after we cover the content that we have for today's class because I'd like to be sure we have enough time to discuss those things, but certainly I will help you with that uh, if we have time at the end of class, which we should. All right. Thank you guys on Facebook for letting me know there wasn't any sound, so we should have that up and running now. All right. So I'm not seeing any questions anywhere else, so let's go ahead and move on to the next part of today's class, which are covering the next set of questions from the frequently asked questions section of volume one. So the sixth question that is very frequently asked is what is our purpose in life? What is the purpose of our human existence? So this is a common question that is asked of students to teachers, and there's been various answers that have been given all throughout the years about what is our true purpose as a human being in this existence and our purpose in life. Well, what I share in the book is I share that, in my opinion, this question is coming from the ego. The human ego is wanting to have some significance, like we're important and there should be some significance in this world. At one time in life, you know, back in prehistoric times, what people were really focused on, human beings were really just focusing on surviving. We were trying to learn how to make clothes. We were trying to learn what foods to eat. We were rubbing two sticks together to figure out how to make fire and keep warm. We were making shelters and things like this. There were lots of things in the world that were more dominant. Human beings were not the dominant creature on this planet. So we were just looking out for our survival at that point and trying to learn as many things as we could. I would suspect that the human ego was not so significant during prehistoric times. But as we've progressed as a species and we've learned more and more things and we've become the dominant creature on this planet where we've pretty much put all these animals that were killing us in the past, we've basically run them to extinction. What scientists share with us is 99% of all animals that once existed are now extinct. There's only 1% of animals that have existed in the world are still in existence. So in my opinion, now that we've become this dominant species in the planet, we think that, okay, there should be some significance here. But in reality, we just fill up our day with certain activities, certain hobbies. We've got jobs that we go to. We've got certain things that we do in order to occupy our time and space. In reality, there really is no true purpose to human existence, but we think that there should be. 
we think that individually that we should have a purpose that we should leave our mark on society that we have this higher calling that we should go out into the world and do these amazing things but this is a real burden to carry around this is a craving desire attachment it's a real burden to carry this around in reality what you're really doing is is you're just surviving and you're spending time with people and doing activities and hobbies in order to occupy our time oftentimes people want an answer they want to know what is my purpose and i say in the book that there is no purpose there's nothing here and the more that you come to understand that that there is nothing here then it can help you to let go some people aren't satisfied with this answer they want some kind of purpose sometimes when people read this section of the book they write me and they tell me that it makes them very sad and very depressed and if that's the case then it's actually working what I write in the book is to help you to let go of your craving, desire, attachment for existence. You shouldn't be craving non-existence, but craving existence is also going to lead to continuous rebirth and you won't be able to experience enlightenment. So the more you get in touch with realizing that there really is nothing here and there is no purpose in this life, then you can train your mind to let go of existence and realize that it doesn't make sense to keep coming back to nothing over and over and over again. So if this answer isn't satisfying to you, where you need some kind of purpose in life, then what I share in the book is I share, create your purpose to get to enlightenment. That can be your purpose, is that sure, you're gonna need to have a job in order to sustain your life with a certain income. Sure, you're gonna have friends, you're gonna have family, you're gonna have certain hobbies and activities and things that you enjoy doing in the world. Those things are all fine and wonderful, but be sure that you're spending time dedicated to developing your life practice in order to get to enlightenment so that you don't keep coming back to this life of nothingness where there's nothing here and the more you dissolve the human ego the more you'll realize that it's actually really hard to be a nobody and to look at the world as there's nothing here that when the mind wants to be somebody and leave our mark on society that's actually burdening the mind and the mind will just keep chasing that and chasing that and chasing that and feeling like there's never enough but if you can realize that there's nothing here, that all you're really doing is just looking to create a peaceful and fulfilling life for yourself with relationships and your income and various things that you need in order to sustain your life. But these things don't define who you are. What you would really like to do is train your mind to get to enlightenment. And part of that includes dissolving the ego. And the more that you dissolve the ego, you'll realize that there really is no purpose here in the world. There's nothing here. And you can let go of holding on to this world and just work to progress closer and closer to enlightenment, which includes dissolving the ego. Number seven, can I exercise the physical body and still attain enlightenment? The short answer is yes. If you would like to exercise, you can certainly exercise and still get to enlightenment. Oftentimes this question is coming from people who interact with monks and if they interact with ordained practitioners, oftentimes ordained practitioners aren't really doing a lot of physical activity. Although the Buddha used a lot of walking during his lifetime to stay physically fit, nowadays there's more and more people who are starting to be aware that ordained practitioners need to have some physical activity because there's a lot of unhealthy conditions within that population. But 
predominantly you'll find that ordained practitioners don't exercise. It's not because it helps you to get to enlightenment to not exercise. It's actually for other reasons that we could go into if you guys would like to discuss that. But in terms of getting to enlightenment, you would like this physical body to be healthy. The more healthy that this physical body is, the longer it will stay around, which means the mind will stay in this existence and you'll be able to train the mind for a longer period of time. So if you'd like to do a little bit of exercise, go for it. It's a personal choice of whether somebody chooses to exercise or not. But be aware that one can become attached to the exercise. The exercise isn't the problem. It's the craving desire attachment to the exercise. So let's just say somebody sets up a schedule for themselves that every day for six days a week, they're gonna exercise at 8 a.m. And now they think that this is permanent. And now when they miss their exercise at 8 a.m. because they're not gonna be able to permanently exercise every single day at 8 a.m., when they miss it, they might be grumpy and irritable and agitated. That's because there's that craving that attachment to the exercise, and if that gets fulfilled, they get pleasant feelings of conditioned happiness or excitement. But then when it doesn't get fulfilled, they might get grumpy or irritable or sad or agitated. This is because the exercise has become an attachment. So you can train the mind to still exercise without a craving desire attachment. And one of the things that can also happen when somebody is exercising is they might look at themselves as being above others and when they see people that don't exercise they might look down on people so not only can the mind become attached to exercise and then experience grumpiness or irritability when they're not exercising the ego can get involved through exercise and looking down on people who are not as physically fit. So if you're gonna exercise, be sure you do it in moderation, just like everything else in the middle way. You're not looking to crave and long and yearn for it and the body starts breaking down as you're doing it excessively. But you're also not interested in not being physically active at all and just sitting around and doing nothing because then the physical body isn't very healthy. So you'd like to find this middle way where you can maybe do some walks or you can do some bike riding or some activities and things like that to just maintain some general health in the physical body and don't allow the mind to get attached to it and don't allow the mind to have ego around it either. Number eight. Is medicine and medical procedures for the body an attachment? The answer is that the attachment itself isn't the object. The medicine or medical procedures aren't the actual attachment. The craving desire attachment is inside the mind. It's the longing and yearning for a particular object. So you can actually have a craving desire attachment to water, even though water is something that we all need and we all drink and we wouldn't be able to sustain our life without water. Water could be an attachment, but it's not the object itself. It's how the mind is relating to it. So for example, say I am driving my car to a hiking trail and I've got my water inside the car and I get out and I take my hike and I'm 30 or 45 minutes into my hike and I realize that I've forgotten my bottle of water and now the mind becomes so discontent it becomes uncalm it becomes unsteady and now you rush back to the car this 30 or 45 minutes and then you get to the car like, oh my goodness my water my water my water the mind is craving it's desiring it's attached to this water right but that same individual if they had trained their mind and they don't have craving desire attachment 
30 or 45 minutes into their walk, they could realize, hmm, I forgot my water. I should probably turn around and go get my water because I'm going to be out here for six or eight hours and it's wise to have water. And then you calmly turn around, you walk back to the car, you calmly get your water, and then you move on with your day and you take your hike. So the problem there isn't the water itself because there's two individuals that are doing two different things. They're having two different experiences, but they're both needing this water. But one person is wanting it, expecting it, craving, longing, yearning, desiring, attached to it, while the other person isn't. They understand that they can calmly walk back to the car and retrieve their water and go on about their day. So the same thing with medicine and medical procedures. We have this modern technology now that helps us to sustain our life and to repair the physical body in ways that didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. They had medicine and they had doctors during the lifetime of the Buddha, but it wasn't quite as evolved as it is nowadays. So we can use medicine and medical procedures to help us in order to maintain the health of the body. But the mind can be attached to these things. So let's just say that you're going in for a medical procedure and you're very nervous or or maybe you're maybe let's just say you're having plastic surgery. You're trying to look a certain way with your appearance and now the mind is longing, yearning for it. So you could have a craving and desire attachment for medicine or medical procedure, but it's not the object itself. It's how the mind is relating to it. So whether you use medicine or medical procedures, it's a personal choice for you in, in consultation with medical professionals that you might be seeking help with. But understand that the craving desire attachment isn't the object itself of the medicine or medical procedures. If you're using a certain medicine, like say like a headache remedy, that could help you to reduce the pain and then move on with your day and maintain a bit of comfort in the physical body. But if you don't look at the source of that problem and you just rely on the medicine every single day and you're just taking the medicine, not realizing that you're not eating well, that you're not sleeping well, that you're not drinking and hydrating the body, if you're not addressing the underlying problem and you're just attached to the medicine and you're just taking the medicine all the time, then this can be problem. So you need to look at the individual situation that's occurring and what the mind's doing in relationship to any particular medicine or any particular medical procedure and understand that the craving desire attachment isn't the object itself, but it is how the mind relates to this thing and whether or not you're actually going to the root cause and actually fixing the root cause. Then number nine, what significance can I apply to dreams? Well, what I share in the book is that there is no significance to the dreams. Essentially, the mind is very creative. It has a lot of activity and you can have any dreams about any number of things. And oftentimes when people wake up from dreams, they can be really shaken up or they can have a craving desire attachment to find somebody who can interpret their dreams for them. And what I encourage you to do in the book is to not go down that path that realize that a dream, it's not true reality. It's something that's happening while you're sleeping. You don't have control over this, it's just happening. And when you awake, whatever the dream is, either good or bad or whatever thoughts came to your mind, just set it to the side. For the most part, just set everything to the side and just go on with your day. Cut it off and let it go. If there's any discontentedness associated with the dream, just cut it off and let it go and move on with your day, realizing that it's not true reality. 
if you go down this path of trying to find someone to interpret your dreams, you're going to find for every single dream interpreter, you're going to find a different interpretation. And there's no significance to it. It's just the overactivity of the mind and the mind having certain activity that you're remembering once you wake up. Now, with that said, something that I don't share in the book that I'll share with you guys that are learning with me is that if you have certain recurring dreams, this can be an indication of certain craving desire attachments that you're having. Or if you wake up from a dream and you're very scared or you're very fearful, this can be an indication of a craving desire attachment as well. Let's just say you're having a certain dream of you dying and you're constantly dying in the dream and when you wake up you're really scared and fearful because you dreamed that you died well here you can see that you're attached to existence you're craving existence and now you're going to need to seek advice from your teacher of how to eliminate your craving to existence and how to eliminate your fear of death because an enlightened being isn't going to have fear of death they're not going to have any fears whatsoever. So if you do have certain dreams that are reoccurring, like say like you have a reoccurring dream of a boyfriend or a girlfriend from the past or, you know, some future thing that you're wishing that you're going to be wealthy or rich or hopeful that someday you're going to be super wealthy or rich. These are things that can indicate certain cravings, desires, attachments, and it's good to look at those things and then in the present moment address it through things like meditation and other practices, but don't look at it as its true reality. Just look at it as an indication of what the mind can potentially be holding on to and what is bubbling up in the mind and that you might need to address in your actual life in terms of whether you're afraid of death or whether you're craving money or whether you're having constant recurring memories of a past partner or something of that nature, there's potentially craving desire attachment there that needs to be eliminated. And you can address that in real time in your actual life. But what's going on in the dream can just potentially be an indication of those things. Number 10, why is enlightenment permanent? So oftentimes people will ask this because the way that I present the universal truth of impermanence is I say that all things in the world are impermanent. And what I mean by that is all material objects, all conditioned objects. What the Buddha taught is that all conditioned objects are of a nature to decay. Essentially what he talks about is conditioned objects and unconditioned objects. Conditioned objects, they arise, they change and they fade away. And this is what we call impermanence. And this is what I share in the foundational teachings where I share that all things in the world are impermanent because everything you see around you is a conditioned object. Everything you see, whether it's your computer, your phone, the clothing that you're wearing, the physical body, the dwelling that you're living in or residing in, anything that you can see around you in the world, it's all impermanent. It's a conditioned object. It arises, it changes, and it fades away. Then there's what's called unconditioned objects. An unconditioned object does not arise, it does not change, and it does not fade away. It just exists. So enlightenment itself is an unconditioned object. The natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught during his lifetime those are unconditioned objects. So this is why the teachings of the Buddha are just as applicable during his lifetime as they are today. 
the books that things were written down in, the memories that people have, those things have all changed. They're all subject to impermanence because they're a conditioned object. But the natural laws themselves, like the natural law of gamma, dependent origination, and all the other things that you learn on this path, these are the timeless teachings of the Buddha. They're unconditioned. They didn't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. This is why I can describe them to you, and you can independently verify them in the world because they existed during the lifetime of the Buddha, and they exist now as well. So now that you understand what a conditioned object is versus an unconditioned object, a conditioned object arises, changes, and fades away. An unconditioned object does not arise, does not change, and does not fade away. I can help you to understand why enlightenment is permanent. Because what an unenlightened being is experiencing are conditioned feelings. These conditioned feelings, they arise, they change, and they fade away. So that happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria, those pleasant feelings, they arise, they change, and they fade away because they're conditioned feelings. They're feelings that are based on some condition. There's a craving, desire, attachment, a longing, and a yearning. And if the mind gets the objects of its affection, it gets those conditioned feelings of happiness. If you get a new car or a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, or a new phone, you might get conditioned happiness. But because that happiness is based on some condition, and this condition is impermanent, now your feeling is impermanent. Your happiness is going to arise, change, and fade away. The same thing is happening with sadness, painful feelings, like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, and those neither painful nor pleasant feelings, like shyness, or discomfort, or unsatisfied condition of the mind. These are all conditioned feelings. They arise, they change, and they fade away. An unenlightened being is basing their inner feelings on some condition. There needs to be a certain condition present in order for the mind to experience those feelings. So if this condition is met, and this condition is met, and this condition is met, and this condition is met, now I will be happy. That's what the unenlightened mind is doing. But now that happiness is just temporary because it's based on all these conditions. And those conditions can't be permanently true. So now the mind's going to move to sadness or anger, some other painful feeling. Well, in the enlightened mental state, the enlightened mental state has removed all the conditions. There are certain conditions in the unenlightened mental state. The unenlightened mind has craving, anger, and ignorance. It has those 10 fetters, those 10 pollutions or 10 taints. Those 10 fetters are the conditions that are in the mind that are hindering it from experiencing enlightenment. And those conditions in the mind are causing those conditioned feelings. Those conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, are being experienced because of these pollutions in the mind. By the time you get to enlightenment, you've wiped the mind clean of all those conditions. You've purified the mind of the pollutions, of the taints, of the defilements. All of those pollutions are out of the mind. And now you're experiencing an unconditioned mental state of enlightenment. So those mental qualities of peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy, they're unconditioned. There's no condition 
that's causing the peacefulness to arise. The peacefulness is just always there. What you've actually done is you've gotten rid of the conditional feelings. You've gotten rid of the conditional pollutions that are in the mind that are causing these conditional feelings to arise. So now when you've gotten rid of all those conditions, now the mind is unconditioned. So that peacefulness is unconditioned, the calmness, the serenity, the contentedness, the joy, it's not based on any condition. So because it's not based on any condition, it didn't arise based on a condition, it can't be eliminated based on any condition or any condition not existing. So that joy in the enlightened mental state is just always there. The enlightened mind doesn't base its inner feelings on some condition. It's experiencing unconditioned happiness or unconditioned peacefulness or unconditioned joy. You don't need any condition to be met in order for it to experience that peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy. The unenlightened mind isn't experiencing that. The unenlightened mind, you might wake up and it's sunny outside, and then you go take a shower, and when you come out, now it's raining. And because that sun was not permanent, the mind is now experiencing frustration that it's raining outside. Where the enlightened mind, when you wake up, you're experiencing peace and joy already before you even look outside. And then when you see that it's sunny outside, okay, it's sunny outside, let's go outside and do some activities. But then when you leave to go take a shower and you come back and you see that it's no longer sunny outside, that it's raining, your mind is still joyful. Your mind is still peaceful because you already understood that the sun is impermanent. You didn't base your inner feelings on the fact that it's sunny outside. You just understood like, okay, it's sunny outside, so that means we can go outside. Oh, it's raining now? Okay, well, I guess I need to do something indoors. Or maybe I'll go play in the rain. Who knows, right? So you have to decide for yourself. But an enlightened being isn't going to develop their inner feelings based on conditional experiences. Because those conditional experiences, they arise, they change, and they fade away. And an unenlightened mind is going to be experiencing those conditioned feelings. But the enlightened mind is going to have unconditioned mental qualities, that there's no condition that is creating those mental qualities. All the conditions have been wiped clean, so now the mind is permanently experiencing the unconditioned mind with qualities such as peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy. In this enlightened mental state, it's permanent. Once your mind is experiencing it, it will never go back to experiencing the unenlightened mental state again because you've purified the mind. Once you've gotten rid of the conditions that are causing conditional feelings, those conditions will never come back again because you've eliminated them from the mind. You've purified the mind. Now, number 11, before I open up to questions from all of you guys and then move on to the next part of our class, is this last question in the frequent last question section is, why are donations of support for teachers of Gotama Buddhist teachings so important? Well, there's two aspects to this. The first one is that in order to continue the teachings of the Buddha, there needs to be some amount of support that is provided to temples or ordained practitioners, to teachers, to help us to be able to share the teachings. While we offer the teachings at no cost, 
it isn't actually free for us to share the teachings. We need things nowadays like computers and lights and microphones. Uh, we need clothing and food, shoes, medicine, shelter. We need these kinds of things in order to sustain our life and to be able to share the teachings and continue them in the world. We need to create books and print books and things like this. So anybody who's sharing these teachings in the way that the Buddha shared them, they're not going to be charging for their teachings, but they do need some kind of support in order to continue to share their teachings. So what we do is we practice generosity by making donations to teachers and temples and efforts that allow the teachings to come into the world. And this has been going on for 2,500 years that people have just been sharing whatever they're able to share. And not everybody can do that, but there's time, effort, energy, and resources that if you can't share a donation of financial support, people might share their time or their effort or their energy in some way to be able to help the teachings continue in the world. And if you've created a situation where you've learned the teachings and you've benefited from them, that benefit has come to you through the generosity of people in the past. For 2,500 years, people have been paying it forward and they've been making supportive donations of their time, effort, energy, and resources to ensure that the teachings can continue in the world. And now these teachings are here with us. And whatever we decide to do with these teachings will either ensure that they're going to die and they're, they're not going to continue, or that we will support the teachings so that future generations can then learn the teachings. So we're paying it forward so that future generations will have these teachings preserved in a way that they'll be able to learn the teachings and benefit them as well. So donations of time, effort, energy, and resources are used to help the continuation of the teachings of the Buddha. And that allows more and more people to get to enlightenment, experiencing that peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy, allowing the world to become a more peaceful, kind, and loving society where people can live harmoniously with each other. The second reason why people make donations is that generosity leads to enlightenment. By you practicing generosity, it will help lead to your own enlightenment. Whether you practice generosity within your community of friends and family and coworkers, or even people that you don't know, you're gonna to need to practice that type of generosity in order to get to enlightenment. Because the mind with craving, desire, attachment is oftentimes very selfish and it holds on to things very tightly. So by you practicing generosity in all parts of your life, from the middle way, not craving it, but also not being completely complacent and never sharing either, but finding the middle way where you can give and share without any expectation of anything in return, you can share with various people around you as you're able to do that with your time, effort, energy, and resources. But also by you sharing towards the continuation of the teachings of the Buddha, this is helping you to further develop your practice of generosity, which is going to help you eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, your discontentedness is going to gradually diminish and you'll get closer and closer to the enlightened mental state. You'll need more than just generosity in order to get to enlightenment. There's other aspects of this path that I've been teaching you all the way through, but in terms of why do people make donations of support for teachers of Gautama Buddha's teachings? It's because they're interested in seeing the teachings continue because they see the benefit 
in their own life with the teachings having impacted their own condition of their mind and condition of their life and they would understand that generosity and giving and sharing is going to lead to their own enlightenment so they might choose to give and share their time effort energy and resources in order to help them to eliminate craving desire attachment which is ultimately going to help them to get closer to enlightenment so let me see what questions you guys have on any of these and then the way that you would ask those questions is through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. In the comment section, I'll be able to see those. And then if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. I see a question here from Christine in Zoom. It says, if we have no purpose, why even survive? Why even occupy our time? Why even strive? So the goal here is to help you understand that there is no purpose there's nothing in this life that the mind should hold on to there's nothing worthy of the mind holding on to but if you would like to have a purpose then make your purpose to get to enlightenment because once you get to enlightenment you'll be completely fulfilled you'll be completely satisfied the reason to strive is to get out of this whole cycle of rebirth so you're not continuously coming back to nothing over and over and over again and continuing to come back to discontentedness over and over and over again because if you're in existence and the mind is not enlightened then there's going to be discontentedness there's going to be grief pain displeasure and despair these are the words of the buddha and you can see that for yourself that in the unenlightened mental state there's a certain amount of grief pain displeasure and despair and you're not interested in continuing to come back to that and in order to escape all of that you're going to need to create a life for yourself in which is sustaining that you have a right livelihood for example and you have relationships and you have people and experiences around you that you find to be fulfilling but don't allow your mind to think that this is your purpose, that my purpose is to end racism on this planet, or my purpose is to eliminate this, that, or the other thing on the planet. This is taking on a huge burden. When you realize that there's really nothing here and that we don't have this higher purpose that has been assigned to us, then you can realize like, hey, I've got this freedom to put together the type of life that I find to be fulfilling. I don't have to fulfill somebody else's purpose or I don't have to look in the world to find a purpose. I can just create whatever life is fulfilling for me and what's fulfilling for me today might be different than what's fulfilling for me three months from now. And that's okay. Whereas if we think that there's some purpose that we need to look through our life to discover and it takes us 5 10 20 30 50 years to find our purpose and then we think like okay i found my purpose and now you start doing that and now because of impermanence things change and now you're no longer doing that anymore or you hold on and you cling to that purpose so tightly your mind is not opened to perhaps pursuing something else that might be interesting to you so when you don't cling to a purpose then you free up your mind to be able to pursue anything that might be fulfilling that comes along that you feel like could be something that you would like to pursue or something that you would like to strive for. So you can 
develop this striving in terms of building your energy and your effort and your enthusiasm towards certain goals or objectives or interests in your life without craving desire attachment or without thinking that there's some higher purpose to your existence. If you ever are in an airplane and you look down on earth, essentially what I see is I see like a bunch of ants. It's almost like an ant colony running around doing different things. Cars are going here and there. People are going here and there. It's just like running from one place to the next, going to this store to pick up these things and driving to this place to drop off these things and going to this place to do these couple of things and then coming to this place and do this couple of things. If you realize that all of this stuff is just to sustain our life and there's nothing to really cling to, then you can free yourself from trying to find this higher purpose and just do whatever you need in order to sustain your life and to take care of the things that are around you and the people that are around you, but don't take that on as some higher purpose or some higher calling that you feel that you're anointed to now fulfill. Okay, let me see if there's any questions in any of our other platforms as well. You're welcome, Christine, pleased to help you. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions in any of our other platforms. So let's move on to our next portion of the class where I'm going to share with you how to determine whether you're enlightened or not and that you've attained enlightenment. So this is a common question that somebody might ask after they've learned the foundational teachings in this very first volume and they've gone through the group learning program is how do they know that they've actually attained enlightenment? Well, it's important to understand that in seven months, you're not going to attain enlightenment going through the group learning program. You're going to need a lot more than just the group learning program in order to get to enlightenment. That's why the Polykin and an English study group is there that students can move from the group learning program into that program, or they can be doing both programs at the same time. There's content there that you're going to need in order to get to enlightenment. But this first program is the foundation to help you to be able to establish your ability to get to enlightenment. So you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment within a seven month period in the group learning program, but you would have been able to establish a good foundation. And some students go through the group learning program more than once. I have some students like Amina, I think this is your sixth time because I've taught this now six times and you've learned all these different times and I'm going to be starting the seventh iteration and students are continuing to learn as they go through and not every student's going to necessarily take the group learning program six times but I know Amina has and some other people have taken it two three four different times but understand that there's that polycan in an English study group for you to move into because you're going to need teachings in there in order to actually get to enlightenment this group learning program is designed to help you build a strong foundation, but then you're going to need other teachings as well through courses and retreats and various programs that I offer to be able to fully get to enlightenment. So the first thing that I share in the book in terms of how to determine if you get to enlightenment is I share, first of all, don't ever stop practicing the teachings, that it's important that you don't ever stop practicing. Oftentimes people think of getting to enlightenment as this kind of artificial finish line and that once you get to the finish line, ah, now I can like be done. I get my trophy, I get my reward, I get a certificate and now I'm done. I don't meditate anymore. I don't do this. I don't do that. That's not what enlightenment is, that you're developing this life practice, something that you're going to be practicing for the rest of your life. 
as you're building up your practice, yeah, there can be some real struggles, some real challenges, and it can feel overbearing sometimes and really difficult. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you'll be practicing these teachings so effortlessly that it's just so easy for you to have right speech. Where right now, in certain relationships, you might really struggle with right speech. You might really struggle with having right intention and just thinking of those three aspects of the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-in-will, and the intention of harmlessness. Maybe when you're around certain people, you just really you know, want to see bad things happen to that person. And that's normal for somebody who's making their way to enlightenment. But as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, it just becomes easier and easier and effortless. And you're never going to stop practicing the teachings. It just becomes easier to practice them. That essentially it's like the mind is being upgraded to this new operating system. When the mind is unenlightened, it's like on this old archaic operating system, version 1.0. And now archaic, unenlightened version 1.0 of the mind, it's a real struggle and really difficult to do certain things in the world. But now you go through these incremental upgrades, like you go through the group learning program, you take some retreats, you take the polycanon and English study group, you're getting some personal guidance from your teacher, you're upgrading incrementally to Enlightenment 9.0. And by the time you get to Enlightenment 9.0, while it was a challenge to get there and it was kind of cumbersome along the way, once you get up and running on this new operating system, it's quite easy. And you realize like, wow, this new operating system works so much better. Where when you were in the process of upgrading, it was quite a challenge and you weren't quite sure where things were on the computer as you were operating in this new operating system. But slowly but surely you gain understanding of this new operating system and you realize that it does operate much easier, much more seamless in its first nature now. So you're never going to stop practicing the teachings. You're going to be meditating. You're going to be practicing, you know, all those eight steps of the Eightfold Path, but you're going to be doing it more and more effortlessly by the time you get to enlightenment. So you're never going to stop practicing the teachings if you've attained enlightenment. Number two is that you'll be fully practicing the Eightfold Path, which includes the Four Noble Truths and the Five Precepts. Those teachings and others plug into the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the core central teaching. You will know the Eightfold Path inside and out, backwards and forwards, like the back of your hand by the time that you've gotten to enlightenment. You would have needed to study it inside and out, backwards and forwards, to be able to implement it in your life. So if somebody asked you, like, what is right intention? You'd be able to say, oh, right intention has three aspects. There's the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness. And you would know exactly how to practice all of those three aspects of right intention. And if somebody asked you, you know, what is right speech? You'd be able to say, oh, right speech. It's abandoning lying, abandoning slander, abandoning harsh speech, and abandoning frivolous speech. That's the layer of right speech from the Eightfold Path. And then more deeply, it's the five factors of well-spoken speech. And you'd be able to understand what those five factors are. Not that you're planning to teach or you're going to be a teacher, but even if you're going to be a politician or a business owner or a construction worker or whatever it is, an IT professional, you're gonna need to study the teachings to a certain point that gradually, slowly but surely, you understand them really well and that you would be able to 
let somebody know what they are if they ask you in a very casual sense, not in a formal sense in the way that I teach as a teacher, but in a casual sense, you'd be able to describe them because you're practicing them so closely that you would have had to dial each one of these steps on the Eightfold Path in so closely that you'd be able to describe generally what they are and how to practice them. And that's how you'll know that you're fully practicing them because you'll understand it and you'll have gotten to this enlightened mental state meeting these criteria that I'm sharing with you here. Number three is when you have fully attained enlightenment as an arahant, that's that fourth stage of enlightenment, you will have eliminated all the 10 fetters. So you would know what each of those 10 fetters are, what the symptoms of them are, what the remedies are, and how to know that you've actually eliminated them. Number four, you've cultivated a mind that is completely practicing the Brahma Viharas. This is chapter 14 of volume one, where I taught loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. You will have fully cultivated those and know what they are, because in order to cultivate them in the mind, you would need to know what they are. So an enlightened being is going to be practicing all four Brahma Viharas at all times. They would have deeply cultivated those qualities in their mind. Number five is you will be fully practicing the seven factors of enlightenment, which is something I'm going to be teaching you in detail next Sunday. I've mentioned this in a few classes previously, but now I'm going to go through and teach it to you in detail next Sunday as part of the five hindrances because the seven factors of enlightenment are to fine tune the mind. They're tools to help you fine tune the mind. And those seven factors of enlightenment, they're not to determine whether you are enlightened or not, but they're tools to help you fine tune the mind. And they actually help you eliminate the five hindrances among accomplishing other benefits as well. So you would know what those seven factors of enlightenment are and you would be practicing them fully and effortlessly by the time you get to enlightenment. And then the sixth aspect of how to determine if you've attained enlightenment is that you'll know for yourself that you've attained enlightenment because you will have eliminated 100% of all discontentedness from the mind. You'll no longer be experiencing conditioned feelings. Your mind won't be going up and down and up and down. You won't be irritable and grumpy and agitated and frustrated. And then later on be happy and excited and elated and thrilled. And then you'll be bored and lonely and shy and resentful and jealous. You won't be having those kinds of things. You won't have stress. You won't have anxiety, no matter what's happening in your life. It's just so seamless and so straightforward. Everything is effortless for you. There are certain challenges that you'll meet, certain things that you're trying to accomplish in terms of goals or objectives, but you'll be able to think those things through and you'll be able to make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. So if you have any amount of discontentedness in the mind, even the slightest ickiness, or even the slightest bad mood, the mind is not yet enlightened. So in order to get to complete liberation, where the mind is fully enlightened, you need to eliminate 100% of all discontentedness. And you'll know that that's occurred because it'll be one year or two years or three years. You haven't experienced any discontentedness whatsoever, not even the slightest ickiness in the mind. And you'll see that these qualities of enlightenment will shine through more and more. The brightness and the brilliance will come through in the mind. That peacefulness and the joy will be shining through in the mind. So these are 
the six aspects of how to determine if you've attained enlightenment or not. Do you guys in Zoom have any questions on this? I think I've lost my connection to the live stream. I don't think it's still live streaming. So I'll just turn over to you guys in Zoom if you guys have any questions. Okay, I don't see any questions there. So let me just share some additional content that is towards the end of the book that kind of rounds out the entire book. There's a point at the very end of the book where I share these words of the Buddha. This is the Buddha kind of coming to his death where he's starting to kind of prepare his students for his death. These aren't his final words, but this is a lead up to his final words that I'm gonna share with you at the end here. But here he says, and I have at the end of the book where he shares with his students, wonder forth, O monks, for the welfare of the multitude, for the peacefulness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and peacefulness of heavenly beings and humans. Teach, O monks, the teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing. Reveal the perfectly complete and purified holy life. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are falling away because they do not hear the teachings. There will be those who will understand the teachings. So here what he's doing is he's encouraging his closest students to go out and share the teachings with those people who are interested in learning the teachings out of compassion for the world. Compassion is the concern for misfortune of others because by sharing the teachings as a teacher, you're helping beings get to peacefulness. Whether they're heavenly beings or human beings, these beings can get to enlightenment. And these other beings in the lower realms will eventually get to a birth where they can get to enlightenment. And if we have these teachings very vibrant in the human realm, then as beings are getting into the human realm, the teachings will be here for them to be able to get to enlightenment. And this is going to help many beings experience this peacefulness and improved welfare as a result of the teachings being shared in the world. The Buddha shares with teachers to teach the teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end with the right meaning and phrasing. What he's saying here is that when a teacher delivers a discourse, it should be good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. It shouldn't start off really great and then fade, or it shouldn't start off you know, kind of bad and then get better and better as it progresses throughout the discourse. But instead, an individual who's teaching and teaching the way that the Buddha shared, there should be good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end so that the students are interested in listening and understanding that yes, these teachings are gonna be impactful and helpful for their life. And he ensures that he shares with the right meaning and phrasing. It's really important to use the proper meaning and phrasing or the right meaning and phrasing. If we kind of discard our attentiveness to the word choices that we're using in describing the teachings, then they're not as penetrating and powerful and as potent as we're delivering the teachings. An individual who's teaching needs to be very intentional with the words that they're using. So every single word in these book series that I share, as I'm teaching, as I'm sharing the teachings in any kind of venue or any kind of resource, 
I'm being very intentional about the words and the phrasings that I'm using, the word choices. I'm intentionally using certain specific word choices based on what one needs to understand in order to get to enlightenment. And I'm also working to ensure that as I'm delivering teachings, whether it's in a class, a course, a retreat, whether it's an online class, is that it's good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. That's the whole goal of sharing the teachings so the students are interested in learning and developing their practice. Then the Buddha says here at the end, he says, reveal the perfectly complete and purified holy life. That's what the path to enlightenment is, is purifying the mind. And it's a complete comprehensive path. It's not just little bits and pieces that you can share in a mem here and there, or it's not like, you know, I'm having this problem. What's the two minute thing you can tell me that fixes that problem? Instead, the Buddhist teachings are perfectly full and complete, and it's going to help you understand how to purify the mind. And then he talks about there's beings with little dust in their eyes that are falling away that do not hear the teachings. Well, if you use this analogy of the mind is sleeping and it's unawake, well, when you wake up from a sleep, you've got a little bit of dust in your eyes and you got to get that little bit of dust out of your eyes and then you can be fully awake. So there are certain beings in the world who are generally pretty wholesome and doing a lot of wholesome things and maybe they're even generous and they're kind and they're compassionate and they're loving but they just don't have the full teachings that they need in order to make their way to enlightenment fully they just got a little bit of dust in their eyes and if they can just get that little bit of dust out of their eyes they'd be able to make their way to enlightenment and that's what the buddha is describing here is that there's these beings which just a little bit of unwholesomeness or a little bit of lack of wisdom or a little bit of craving here and there, a little bit of frustration or irritation, and they're falling away. They're falling away into the cycle of rebirth. They're not being able to ascend to this enlightened mental state because they don't hear the teachings. And he's encouraging his closest students to be able to share his teachings so that people can get this little bit of dust out of their eyes and awaken to enlightenment. And then he says, there will be those who will understand the teachings. Not everybody who learns the teachings understands them 100%. Not everybody's willing to invest the time, effort, and energy to actively learn and penetrate into the teachings and show up to classes and read books and do meditation and ask teacher questions and things like this. So there are people out there and you guys may be some of them that are understanding the teachings and that are benefiting from the teachings, but not everybody will. That's the universal truth of impermanence. But there will be those who will understand, but not everybody will. And the Buddha here is encouraging people to learn and practice by the teachers being able to share the teachings and that's what's going to ensure that the teachings come into the world in a way that people can benefit from them. Then there's a teaching that I share towards the end of the book where this was in the book long before the current war that we have now was going on where I share that the only war worth waging is the war within the mind. Win that war and you have won everything. Because when I was training my mind and going through a lot of the darkness and difficulties and struggles and so forth, it almost felt like a war. It almost felt like there was a war going on within my own mind and I was having to wage this war. At prior times in my life, 
I was having war with other people. I was having war with a landlord, perhaps, or with my wife, or with friends, or family, or other people like this. And I was constantly at war at some points in my life. Well, slowly but surely, I realized that the real war that I needed to wage was within my own mind. And if I won that war, then I'd won everything. And that's the case. That is, if you understand that your war is not with the outside world, this outside world is going to do what this outside world is going to do. You can't control what other people choose to do. But if you understand that the war is really within your own mind and you focus on that, you win that war. You've won everything. Because sometimes we work so hard to argue and bicker and fuss and fight with other people to convince them that we're right and they're wrong. Well, that's the wrong war. Don't wage that war. Wage the war that's inside your own mind, that that craving desire that's making you want to fight and argue. Win that war that's going on inside your mind, and then you'll win everything. You'll win this peace and this joy, this complete fulfillment and satisfaction in the mind. Then there's some other teachings that the Buddha shares as he's getting close to death. His students are actually begging him at one point not to die. There's one particular student who was really attached to him and begging and pleading for him not to die. But of course, a Buddha has to die. He's impermanent, just like everything else. And he says, one who sees the teachings sees me. One who sees me sees the teachings. He's explaining to this student that you don't need this physical body to be here in order to continue to progress towards enlightenment. Because one who sees the teachings sees me. Because if you've studied the teachings close enough and you understand these natural laws of existence, you can look all around the world and you can see the Buddha everywhere around you. So like me losing internet connection today, this is impermanence. The Buddha taught the universal truth of impermanence. So if you can see the teachings, then you see the Buddha. You can see the Buddha everywhere around you. Whenever it goes from being sunny to cloudy, that's impermanence. You can see the Buddha or you experience some impermanence in your life, no matter what it is, there's so much impermanence that exists in the world. Anytime you see impermanence, anytime you see discontentedness being caused by craving, desire, attachment, anytime you see non-self, that the mind is holding on to a self, wanting this body or this mind to be the identification or the self-image of you, and you're experiencing this discontentedness associated with it, those three universal truths, you can see that in your own mind and around the world, all around you, all the time. And you can see the Four Noble Truths, you can see all these teachings, if you understand them really well, then the Buddha is saying, you don't need me because you can see the teachings. You've studied the teachings deeply enough that if you see the teachings, you see me. You don't need this physical body. And then he also said that one who sees me sees the teachings. What he's saying there is that he was a living, breathing, walking example of his teachings. That if you saw him during his lifetime, he was practicing all those individual teachings. He was practicing right view and right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is one of the ways that a Buddha teaches. It's not just through their spoken words, but through their life practice itself, that their students can observe the qualities of the Buddha's mind, and they could see that the Buddha was practicing right speech. And that's one of the ways that they learned how to practice right speech. It's not just through the discourses of what right speech is, but they saw this individual for 
45 years of his teaching career that he was practicing right speech. And that's how they learned. And not only about right speech, but all the other teachings as well. So one who sees me sees the teachings. That's what a teacher should be practicing, that they should be teaching what it takes to get to enlightenment and then practicing those same teachings as well. And then the Buddha's actual last words of what he said as he was getting ready to die and then he actually died is he says this to his students. He says, Ananda, which is one of his closest students. It may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as teachings and discipline will, at my passing, be your teacher. Now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. So these were his last words. The Buddha knew three months before his death that he was going to die. He let people know three months ahead of time. This is how enlightened he was, that he knew that he was going to die three months in advance. And then when he came to his actual point of death, he knew that he was going to die and he shared his last words and then he actually died. There's a big myth in the world that people think he died from eating a poisonous sandwich, but this isn't true. This is just a big myth that he died essentially of old age is what he died from. And his very last teaching is actually the very first teaching that you need to understand in order to get to enlightenment. He shares his very first teaching, which is the universal truth of impermanence. He says, now monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay, strive on untiringly. So that is the universal truth of impermanence when he says all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Of course, he's referencing his own physical body because now he needs to die. But this is the very first place that somebody would start on the path to enlightenment is learning the universal truth of impermanence. So surely as a Buddha, he would know that his last words are going to be very significant and that people are going to remember these for a very long period of time and they're going to be well documented. So he gave his last discourse as he was dying. He uttered his last words, which were the very first teaching that somebody would need to know in order to start the path to enlightenment. And he encourages his students to strive on because all the teachings that he shared during his life are going to then be your teacher. That's what's going to guide you on this path to enlightenment. You don't need his body. You don't need him to keep coming back over and over and over again because he did his work for his own mind and he did his work to be able to share the teachings into the world so that countless people could understand what they are and help them get to enlightenment during his life and after his death. So now when he dies, he's never coming back ever again and he shared the teachings that he needed so that people could then use those teachings in order to get to enlightenment. So let me know what your questions are. If you're in Zoom, you guys should be able to ask any questions by the comment section or raising your hand. I don't think that our live stream is still up and running. Let me just check on it and see. Yeah, it looks like our live stream is down. So it's just us here in Zoom. So anything you guys would like to ask, I'm more than pleased to answer for you. Is Maitreya coming part of the teaching? So 
what you're referencing is is that during the lifetime of the Buddha, he described that Maitreya Buddha is going to be coming into the world, that this is a new Buddha, that the Buddha discussed during his lifetime that there's a Buddha that would arise 2,500 years after his death. And based on the dating of when the Buddha died in the most commonly accepted date in being 483 BC, then the date of Maitreya Buddha arising in the world would be 2017. And this new Buddha is thought to be able to then restore the teachings back into the world in such a way that everybody would be able to get to enlightenment over multiple generations and that this individual would be prepared to be the world teacher, so to speak. So in my opinion, this being is in existence and is here teaching as we speak because the Buddha dated it at 2017, 2,500 years after his death. But it's important to understand that a Buddha arising in the world isn't going to go around and start declaring that they're a Buddha. They're not going to get on the news in 2017, declare that they've awakened to enlightenment and now everybody come study with me. That's not the way that a Buddha functions. If anybody did that nowadays, right away that person would be labeled as having ego and therefore if they have ego, they can't be enlightened and therefore they can't be a Buddha. So a Buddha awakening to enlightenment on their own without the guidance of any teachers they would be wise enough to get to enlightenment on their own without any teachers. They would also be wise enough to know how to start sharing their teachings in the world in such a way that they don't need to get onto the news and announce to people that they have now awakened to enlightenment and everybody come learn with me. In fact, a Buddha's real power is that nobody knows that they're actually a Buddha because if everybody knew who a Buddha was, that individual would have a really hard time teaching because the students would know that this person is a Buddha and they would probably be on their best behavior around that particular person. One of the qualities that a Buddha has is they're able to observe the quality of their student's mind and then by seeing certain difficulties and certain challenges, certain pollutions that are showing certain symptoms in their mind, a Buddha can then offer that person teachings that would actually help them. But if everybody was on their best behavior around this individual, knowing that they're a Buddha, then it would be very challenging for that Buddha to actually help people get to enlightenment because the pollutions would be masked a bit when the students are around that particular teacher that is a Buddha. So in my opinion, a Buddha would not announce to everybody that they're a Buddha. Instead, they would just humbly go about their work, sharing the teachings that led to their enlightenment, helping as many people get to enlightenment as possible during their lifetime, and then preserving their teachings in such a way that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. So in my opinion, Maitreya Buddha is in existence today, but people may or may not know who that person is, and Maitreya Buddha doesn't need others to know who they are in order to actually accomplish their goals and accomplish the work that they need in order to help people get to enlightenment. All right, so it does look like actually that our live stream is up and running. So if there's any questions on live stream, you guys are more than welcome to ask those. Amina's question was here. I'm not seeing it any longer, the one that she had previously. So maybe Amina, if you're still online and you're still hearing this, maybe we'll talk about that question that you had offline because it looks like it got deleted from Facebook somehow and I can't see it any longer. 
All right, we have a question here from EY coming in. How should we treat the different schools of Buddhism like Mahayana and Vajrayana? I may be wrong, but it is based on some cultural beliefs and ego based on the previous chapter's reading. I remember reading that you said it's not the original teachings of Buddha like what Theravada is. So in my opinion, there's nothing in the Mahayana tradition or the Vajrayana tradition that one needs to dive into because in those traditions, you're going to see a lot of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And the more that you go into those kind of things, it's actually taking you away from training the mind to get to enlightenment. Just to get to that first stage of enlightenment, you would need to eliminate wrong behavior and observances, which that wrong observances part is understanding that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship aren't going to lead to your enlightenment. And if you understand dependent origination, then you understand that it's the ignorance or unknowing of true reality that is keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. So you're trying to you know, remedy that with wisdom and rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship doesn't do that. So in terms of treating Mahayana or Vajrayana in any particular way, I would just understand that it's there and that it's what some people choose to learn. But everything that you would need to get to enlightenment is here in the words of the Buddha in the book series that I share and the resources that I share. I have full confidence that I'm able to help you and anyone else who's interested in getting to enlightenment to actually get to enlightenment. So you don't need to go into those other teachings because I think it would just be confusing for an individual to do that. In terms of the people and the practitioners that are in those other schools of Buddhism, in terms of treating them any particular way, I would suggest just treat everybody the same way that you would treat everybody with loving kindness and compassion and you know, generosity and be loving and, and respectful and polite to everybody. That's the best way to treat everybody. So perhaps, EY, I've answered your question there, that there's really no need to dive into those other teachings and just realize that could potentially be confusing for you. Oh, you're welcome, sir. All right, so I'm not seeing any other questions coming in here. And I apologize for the impermanence here with the class and the internet connection. Thank you all for joining for today's class. I'll share with you that in next Sunday's class, we're going to be discussing the five hindrances in the seven factors of enlightenment. So now that I've taught for almost seven months of what it takes to get to enlightenment, I'm now going to share the last class of the group learning program of describing the hindrances and the things that are going to stop you or hinder you from actually getting to enlightenment. And I'm going to share with you the remedies so that when you see these hindrances arising, you can address them with the solutions. And then, of course, this Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together. And then we're going to ultimately be restarting the group learning program from the very beginning with the 13th of August. We're going to be starting from the very beginning. So if you have friends or family that are interested in attending, they can start attending at any point. But that's a good point for them to start. Or if you would like to retake this program, I'll be restarting it from the very beginning on the 13th of August, which is a Sunday. And then, of course, we have our Polycan and an English study group, which meets each Saturday at the same time in the same place. So thank you all for joining for our class. We'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.